Good morning. The scripture reading this morning will come from Jeremiah 29, 10-13. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, when you seek me with all your heart. Well, good morning. Jason, you did a great job picking out those songs. In fact, you did too good of a job, because I'm pretty sure you've already preached my sermon for me <laughs> through the songs, but I guess I should just go through the motion anyway. But if you are paying attention to the words of the songs that we did just sing together, then I honestly think that you have gotten the meat from this lesson. Even the first song that we sang, we talked about Jesus being the foundation of what gets us through our lives, and we sang all together, God has a plan for me, of this I'm sure. And we just read from a passage that I think is very appropriate for the situation that we are in. And I, if you're like me, I think one of the things that has gotten us through the situation that we've been in has been the encouragement that we have received from being able to worship together, whether we're doing that online or whether we're able to be here in person. And I've appreciated so much a few weeks ago Randy's sermons on navigating situations like that. And the thought for this lesson was born out of those lessons that I appreciate so much from Randy. With Jeremiah 29, 11, though, I think this passage is so relevant to where we are now as we sing, God has a plan for me of this, I'm sure. Well, what do we think that plan involves? When we say God has a plan for me, what do we think that he's trying, or what, what are we trying to say? What do we believe that God has in store for us? I think Jeremiah 29, 11, and passages like it, are very encouraging for us when we are in times of what we can call a present distress, but maybe not for the reasons that we think. You see, a lot of times passages like this, like this are given really a surface level, just kind of glance, and we don't dive too much into why this was said and what else is being said around it. And what happens is this sometimes gets hijacked to be, a, I guess, evidence for something like the prosperity gospel, to where, don't worry, God has a plan for you. So if you haven't gotten... Whatever it is that you're wanting in life yet, just stick around, keep following God, and you're going to get it. So if you get sick, don't worry about it. Just keep following God, and if you're sick, you're going to get better. Or if you run out of money, just keep following God, don't worry about it. You're magic, magically, money is going to appear in your bank account. Or if, you're, if you've lost your job and you're looking for a new job, or if maybe for some of our college students that are about to graduate, if you're looking for a job... Don't worry about it. You're going to get the exact job that you need, the exact job you want. If you'll just kind of hang around long enough, God's plan for you is something that's good. It's not for harm. It's to give you a hope and a future. And if we're not careful, then what happens is, without knowing it, we start thinking along the lines of the prosperity gospel. And we start thinking, well, God's plan for me, and as we sing, God has a plan for me of this I'm sure, sometimes I think we're tempted especially in a situation like this one, perhaps to be a little short-sighted. 
And to think, well, this plan means, this plan that God has for me is whatever earthly thing that I need fixed or whatever earthly need that I have, this is going to be fulfilled if I can just wait long enough. And obviously, the big problem with that is what happens when it doesn't? What happens when we have someone who's very sick and we try to wait around in obedience and they're not restored back to health? What happens when we really wanted this uh, particular, maybe a grade in a class for some of our guys, maybe that spot on the team? What happens when we wanted that job or wanted to, to crack into this or that career and we just never could get in there? What, is, what, what do we start doing at that point? We have very few options, right? We have the option to say, well, if God's plan for me is really, if I can make him happy, he's going to make good things happen for me, then either... I'm not making God happy, or God's not there. And I think it's no surprise that when we encounter what James will call trials of various kinds, and what we're going to observe from the parable of the sower in Matthew 13 here in just a moment, I think it's common knowledge to all of us that a, a lot of Christians are in danger of losing their faith when we encounter the trials of the various kinds. And what I would like to do this morning is just to spend a little bit of time in Jeremiah 29, 11 and start to ask why. And then start to ask what things can equip us to help us navigate these times. And I think from Jeremiah 29, 11, we have at least three things. There's probably more, but we probably only have time for two, but we're going to do three anyway <laughs> this morning. And that is this promise of a future hope. It, it involves, yes, the future hope, but involves two other things as well. On the front end, it involves a present distress. Then we get into the promise of a future hope, but then we're also going to see that it has a required promise from Jeremiah 29. So let's go ahead and begin in verse 1. This idea of some kind of prosperity gospel does not last very long when you get into the chapter of Jeremiah 29. You can't even really get out of the first four verses with it. Uh, especially the first nine verses, though. Let's look in verse 1 and find out what's going on. Why is this being said over in verse 11? These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. And you see that there are priests and prophets and everybody, all of the people that have been taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We'll go ahead and pause here. We are in, I'm sure everyone's familiar with, we're at the time of the second group of exiles that have been brought out of Jerusalem. That started in about 604. In verse 2, you find that we're in the second group of people that have been taken out. So this, this message of hope, I, have, I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not to do harm for a future. This comes to a group of people who really need that hope. They have been in exile. The longest of them would have been eight years at this point. We don't have time to dive deeply into what the exile would have meant for these people, but we can at least get this. For these people to be in exile away from Jerusalem is much more significant, significant than someone telling us, hey, you've got to move to a different state for a few years, and then you can move back. Their identity as people is wrapped up so much in their identity as a nation, which is wrapped up so much in the land in which they live, specifically the city of Jerusalem. So when they are exiled from their country, this is something that affects every part of them. 
It affects in their mind their relationship to God because remember, they believe that God dwells in a very special way in the temple in that city. So when they're in exile, this is not just, well, I'm going to live in a different town for a while and I can't wait to go back home. This is much deeper than that. These are people who are in need of a message of hope. And if we skip straight to verse 11, it looks like the hope is this. Go ahead and start packing up your bags, load everything up, because we're about, you're about to leave. I'm delivering you from the distress that you are in. But let's see how this little letter begins in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf because in its welfare you will find your welfare. The message of hope they get is probably not the one they wanted. It's not pack your bags up, you're about to leave. It's the opposite. Build a house. Go ahead and plant your garden because you're going to be there long enough to reap the fruits from that garden. In fact, go ahead and have children because you'll be there long enough to raise your children. In fact, go ahead and give your children in marriage because you'll be there long enough to do that as well. And as we continue in verses 8 and 9, you'll see that if any of these false prophets come to you saying anything different, don't listen to them. And when we get to verse 10, you get a very specific frame of time for how long they're going to be in this present distress. Verse 10, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. So you see this idea of the future hope, you can't really separate it from the first nine verses in the chapter. And those first nine verses in the chapter tell you very much that basically God is telling them, settle down in your present distress because you will be there until the completion of 70 years. And what's interesting is, two times in those verses... We see God telling them, the exile into which I have sent you. So yes, God's plan does involve that future hope, but it's very interesting and very challenging here that God's plan integral to God's plan is also the present distress. And I believe there's a temptation to want to skip over the present distress and get right to the future hope. But when we do that, when we lose sight of the place of distress in God's plan, I think that sets us up for failure when we we encounter those trials of various kinds. Now certainly, I don't think that the exile of the Israelites is a one-to-one parallel to any difficulties we have in life now. That just doesn't work. But we can at least find the sense of commonality in looking for how exactly does Maybe a trial, how do these trials of various kinds, which James will talk about, how do those fit into God's plan if God does have a plan for good for us? And if Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work out together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to His purpose, how can those two things be true? 
Well, I think it, first of all, starts off with recognizing something that Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 4. Excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you want to turn over there with me. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to find two things that I think are very relevant here. To begin with, Peter is going to tell his readers in verse 12, and time forbids us to read the whole chapter, but we really should. Let's, let's go to verse 12, and let's see what Peter has to say. So how do we navigate these things? How can we make sure that we're enduring, I guess for a, a rough illustration here, the years of captivity, present distress? The first thing we can do, I think, is what we read in verse 12 of 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So at least the first thing here that we have Peter, who's inspired by the Spirit, telling his writers, don't be surprised when some kind of fiery trial comes upon you as if this is something that is totally removed from the realm of possibility. He says, no, we can endure these things in the whole chapter. But look what he says in verse 13. Rejoice in this now, as, by the way, James tells us to do the same thing. Rejoice in this now so that you can rejoice when his glory is revealed. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But rejoice now so that you will be rejoicing later. But let's get down to verse 19, which I think is one of the most beautiful short summaries of how we can interact with trials and tribulations in our lives. Look in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And honestly, if we wanted to sum up how we can deal with with trial and tribulation, I think we could just do that. We could commit our souls to a, a faithful, a loving, a good creator while we just keep on doing good because we know we do have the promise of a future hope. But that future hope is so much greater than just the things of this earth. And we're not trying to this morning say, ha, well, we thought Jeremiah 29, 11 had something, a message of hope for us. It doesn't. It really just means this. No, 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 not at all. Jeremiah 29, 11 has a message of hope and it's so much more profound than anything you get out of these prosperity gospels or something like it. It's so much more profound than just, I'm going to have my financial problems fixed, this relationship's going to get fixed, that job situation's going to get fixed, my health is going to get fixed. Those things are important. Yes, they are important. But what I'm saying is, there are things out there that are much better. There is a treasure that moth and rust cannot destroy, and that thieves cannot break in and steal, and that is where our heart needs to be set. That is the hope upon which our heart needs to be set, not on the things on this side of eternity. Now, if you want an example of someone who has entrusted their soul to a faithful creator while doing good, you can look no further than Paul. And Paul can be used in so many different contexts in this particular illustration. But if you want to flip over to 2 Corinthians 12, we'll take a look at what happens to Paul here. In the previous chapter, he's rehearsed all the sufferings that he's gone through on behalf of Christ. And when he gets to chapter 12, he lets us all know that he has a thorn in the flesh. And he said, it's a messenger from Satan sent to harass me. We don't know what this was, but it was bad enough for Paul to beg God to take it away from him. 
So Paul is in a place of, to, for use of that same rough illustration, present distress, okay? And he prays to God, he says, take this away from me. And certainly Paul is faithfully obedient to God. Certainly he is, so that's not a question here. Three times he begs for it to be taken away, and we all know what the answer is, right? The answer is not, okay, pack up your bags, I'm delivering you from your captivity. The answer is much the same as you see in the first part of Jeremiah 29. Settle in. Settle in. Because you'll be here for a while. The answer he gets comes from Christ, and he says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response is not, well, you know what? I would rather have my health, so I'm out of here. I'm going to go find some God that will give me the health that I want. And if this God won't even give me my health, then what's the purpose in serving Him? Paul's response is, therefore, because of this, I will boast gladly I will happily boast in my affliction, in my distress, because when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, what what makes Paul be able to endure all these trials that he goes through, specifically the thorn here, is not because Paul has some kind of personal quality that none of us can have. Paul is not a, a spiritual superhero that we cannot emulate unless we go through some kind of training to make our willpower as strong as Paul's. The thing that keeps Paul anchored to Christ is not how, how much faith Paul can muster and how strong he can be. So, in another way to word that is, the strength of Paul's faith does not lie within Paul's ability to just hang on. The strength of Paul's faith lies 100% in the content, in the foundation of his faith. So as we sang a moment ago, I know God has a plan for me, of this I'm sure, and what did we say right before that? Jesus is my foundation. And because of that, now I can, the other songs that we sang, so now you're seeing, I'm not lying, you literally preached my sermon for me. Because of that, now I can face anything that life throws at me. Any of those earthly treasures that I wanted that I don't get, yes, that's disappointing. Yes, it is very difficult to deal with. We struggle with it. But I can make it through, not because I am just so strong in my willpower, but because the thing that I have based my faith upon is strong enough to beat anything, anything at all that comes my way. And if that is what we believe, then as we sing these songs, I know the plans that God has for me, now we need to start asking some very difficult questions about what what do I think that God has planned for me. Let's go take a quick look at the parable of the sower. Matthew chapter 13. Before we get out of this first point that has gone on way too long, but is important, so we're... Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, I'm I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the parable, so let's just skip straight to the part where Jesus explains it. You know this is about people's attitudes hearing, hearing and receiving the gospel. The second group is the group that we're most interested in right now. This is a group that falls among the rocky ground. And look what happens. Immediately, these people receive it with joy. And I believe this is verse 12. No, sorry, this is uh, 
verse 20 and 21. Verse 20 and 21, on the rocky ground, you have those who hear the word and they immediately receive it. So maybe they're genuinely converted, it seems here, but it doesn't last. Something happens. Something takes that away and it's trial and tribulation. When they encounter persecution or some kind of trouble, they're gone because their roots didn't grow deeply enough. Meanwhile, the final group in the parable is a group that is, it does produce fruit. It grows to be fruitful. Now, certainly the point of this parable is our attitudes as we hear the gospel, but I think we see something very important here. The problem with the seed that don't quite become fruitful, the problem is not that they are the only ones subject to the heat of the sun. In the parable, all of them, all the plants, right? They get, they get the same heat. It's not like this group grows up in a shady area with a hedge surrounding it, and so that's how they became uh, the faithful group of the bunch. The problem is, those that grew among the rocky ground did not put their roots deeply enough into the ground to be able to endure the heat when it came. So the, pro- the issue with keeping faith here is not, well, if I can be removed from problems, I'll keep my faith. The issue is, how deeply have I allowed the gospel to take root in my heart? How deeply have I allowed myself to trust in the gospel? And maybe a better question than that even is, what exactly is it about the gospel that gives me hope? When I read in Jeremiah 29 that God has plans and a hope for them in the future, what kind of hope do I have now? And for that, I think we can look in Romans chapter 8. So let's take a look at Romans chapter 8. We've alluded to this passage a moment ago, specifically verse 28, where it says, All things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to His purpose. And we have the same issue here that we do in Jeremiah 29, 11, in the exact same kind of context. In the context, Paul recognizes that, yes, we have present distress and present suffering, But he puts that against the context of his future hope. Let's look in verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Did you notice that this is nearly the same thing that Peter said in 1 Peter? He talks about rejoicing now so that we can rejoice in the future when the glory of Christ is revealed. Paul's hope is in the same thing. And this hope, as you can read in the rest of the chapter, and he's going to talk more about it in 1 Corinthians 15, is in that resurrection to eternal life. It's in the fact that the tomb of Christ is empty and that he now sits enthroned at the right hand of God. We have the hope of the same kind of resurrection that Christ had. And so for Paul, the hope that we have in the entire gospel message, the message that Christ has been raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, And by the same power, he will also give life to our mortal bodies, as he says earlier in this chapter. The great hope is the resurrection in Christ. And the fact that we access that from Ephesians 2, not by works of merit, but by grace. We access that by a loving, obedient faith in God. And Paul, for Paul, this changes his whole life. He goes from who he was in the past as a Pharisee to now because of that hope, has changed everything, and so he can endure his thorn in the flesh, and he can tell a group of people in the city of Rome, 
going through a present distress, he can say the things you're dealing with now, they're not even worth comparing to the glory that is ahead of you. And it is that kind of hope that can get us through the most difficult of times on this side of things. It is only through hope in something so much greater. You see, when Paul says that in all things, that things will work together for good, Paul is not saying, so if you get sick, you will be fine and you will grow from that as a person. And you will continue to, once you heal, you'll understand why you went through that illness. Paul very well understands that that illness or that trouble, that trial, that distress might be the end of someone's life. So, have we been beaten by that? Have we been beaten by the illness? Have we been beaten? Have we been overcome by whatever this is? Well, let's, let's just let Paul keep talking and we'll find out. Let's look in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. So notice here, Paul's given us a, a very quick summary of the gospel. Based on this, look at what he's about to tell us. In verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So then, now Paul can be sure, inspired by the Spirit, he is confident. Look in verse 38. I am sure that neither death nor life Angels, nor powers, things present, things that will be, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from that hope that we have in the love of Christ. Notice that Paul says, not even death. He starts with death in life. Even if our life ends in the present distress, even if we die in captivity, as many of those Israelites did, we still overcome it. Because Christ has overcome it. And if that is the kind of hope that we have, this eternal life with this good creator, now things start to fall into perspective. If our heart is in the heavenly things that moth and rust can't destroy and then thieves can't break in and steal, then our expectations, our attitudes will be much less centered and focused on the things that will fade on the things that will pass, on the things that can be taken from us. Paul says that even in death, we are still overcomers because Christ himself has overcome these things. Let's go to the, the last thing from Jeremiah 29, and that is going to be the required promise. So we've talked about the present distress and how that fits into the plan. we touched very, very briefly on to what that future hope is for us, what we have waiting ahead of us and why that's so much better, why that's so much deeper, and why that's so much better equipped to get us through difficult times in our lives. But the last thing is, that great hope requires a promise. 
you'll notice in verse 11, or let's go to verse 12 in Jeremiah 29. Then you will call upon me and come to pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. This is very different from something we read in Jeremiah 44. So we're in the same book, but if you want to look very quickly in Jeremiah 44, verse 27, God has very different plans here for the Israelites. He says this, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt will be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end of them. Well, which is it? What's the fate of the nation of Israel? Is it plans for good and not for harm? Or is it specifically plans not for good and for their complete destruction? These are two different groups of Israelites. What makes them different is their response to the promise of God. God gives them a promise and they have an option. They can choose whether or not they want to do their part of that promise or if they don't. And that's just responding positively to the promise. All throughout the book of Jeremiah, you find God begging these people, begging them through Jeremiah to acknowledge their guilt and to repent from what they have done. And he says in chapter 5, he says, just flat out, they won't do it. They have made their faces hard as rocks in verse 3 and 4, and they refuse to repent. And because they have refused to come to God in loving, faithful obedience, their plan is very different. So the plan to do good and not to do harm is not the only plan of God for the Israelites that we read in the book of Jeremiah. There's another plan that seems to be quite the opposite, and by the way, its fulfillment was much quicker than the fulfillment of the future hope. So as we close this morning, I'd like to encourage all of us to ask ourselves, do we know the plans that God has for us? Plans to do good and not for harm? Or are we like those Israelites in the land of Egypt who had rejected God and had served other idols that might would fulfill those immediate earthly needs that they had? They were short-sighted. They couldn't see past those things to the promises of God. What are the plans that God has for us today? And like all of you, I am filled with hope and strength knowing that the promises of God are going to happen. That when God makes a promise, He's going to follow through. He has made a promise to every last one of us that if we will have faithful, loving obedience to Him. That we will spend eternity with Him. An eternity that, that will overcome anything we face on this side of life. And if you're missing, if you're missing that hope, Scripture is very clear as to how we get that hope. It's not by works of merit or if we were good enough to get in or good enough to get it done or good enough to do it we are offered it freely. Ephesians 2 tells us that while we're, while we're all sons of disobedience, God extends that grace to us. 
we accept that gift and we are, we are changed because of it to live a life of loving obedience to God. And if you haven't done that, if you don't have that hope that can anchor you to get you through all the difficult times in life, if you believe that Jesus is who He said He was, and you're ready to commit to Him, then I cannot think of any good reason for you to not do that right this moment. We're going to sing a song in just a second. If you need to come to Christ to get access to that hope, then please don't wait. Or, life is tough. Things get hard. And it's very easy to get up here and to talk about all this stuff. It's something very different to be going through it. I totally understand that. And maybe you are going through these things now, and you just need the encouragement. You need the reminder. You need the prayers of the church. Please let us encourage you this morning. If you need to respond to the gospel in any way this morning, we hope that you'll come now as we sing together.